you have a Bible with you today, our text is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. So I say to you, hear the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or, and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. I pray for uh, those who hear that this, that your word would be edifying, it would be sanctifying, and it would be uh, effective. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, if I remember correctly, this is number 12 of our series entitled Guess Who's Coming to Dinner on Race, Mission, or Race, Ethnicity, and Mission. And today's passage is a lot like last week's passage with some significant differences, so, so much so that I thought I should do both of them. So the question I'm going to start out with today is just this. Um, when you come to church, is God concerned about your wardrobe? You're concerned about what you wear. Now, the question, it, it, it depends what I mean by wardrobe, right? So when I first started, I remember when, when I was doing sort of my audition sermon to be one of the pastors on staff here, I was leaving our house in Auburn, and I didn't have a... a and our, my middle daughter came running up to me. She was probably seven or eight, and she said, Daddy, Daddy, you can't preach at church without a tie. They won't hire you. And I said, well... If they won't hire me without a tie, then I'm the wrong guy for them. <laughs> and they hired me. But shortly after I became a pastor, people I could tell some people were more uncomfortable with the fact that I wasn't wearing a tie when I preached until finally someone got up the nerve. An older gentleman, an older member came up and said, Tommy, I've been talking to people and we decided that you need to wear a suit to preach in. And I said, why do I need to wear a suit? And he said, well, because we, the Lord deserves our best every Sunday, and you're not bringing the Lord our best, your best. And I, in a moment of inspiration, I asked him, do you own a tuxedo? And he said, well, yes, I do. And I said, why don't you wear your tuxedo to church? And he said, well, it would be inappropriate. And I said, is it your best? And he didn't answer me. Now, unfortunately, he also left the church, but that's another story. <laughs> the point is, we get wrapped around the axle about like, things like that, things that are external. Now, let me go back to the question again. Does the Lord care about your wardrobe? And the answer is absolutely yes. But I'm, when, I, when I say the Lord's concerned with what you're wearing, I don't mean necessarily you're physically clothed. What I'm talking about is, spiritually speaking, are you wearing the righteousness of Christ... Have you put that on, or are you wearing your own righteousness? Two outfits, really, that any human being could wear. You can either wear your own righteousness, your own goodness, filthy and dirty as that is, probably doesn't even wear a tie, 
or the righteousness of Christ. That's, in some sense, that's where the, the governing metaphor that Paul uses in the book of Colossians. Like, I remember years ago, I used to watch with my girls. Remember the show, What Not to Wear? And I think the, the, the hosts were named Cliff and Stacy. And it was usually, you know, some kids would write them and say, our mother's a horrible dresser or our father's wardrobe makes us ashamed when we go out of the house. And they would come in and they would make sure, right, that first of all, they would throw away all the bad stuff and then they would put, give them new clothes, a new wardrobe that looked good on them. And the very last thing they would always do is they would start to accessorize. Right? They, would, they would say, these things go with you. These things that you had in your old wardrobe, they don't go with your new wardrobe. Here are the things that go with your new wardrobe. So in some sense, when we look at the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians, in some sense, is a theological version of what not to wear. Right? In many ways, it's like Galatians, and that there is a mixed race church, and that people have become Christians, and people, someone came in and started telling them, hey, if you want to be a Christian, that's great, but it'd be even better if you put on all the rest of this stuff. And the Apostle Paul comes in, and he has to deal with that. And so the first two chapters, he makes sure they're wearing the right wardrobe. He talks about the wardrobe they shouldn't be wearing, their old nature, their old self, their, their sinful self, deserving God's wrath. And here's the new wardrobe that they should be wearing, which is the righteousness of Christ. Right, That when Christ went to the cross, he didn't die to make us good. He died to give us his goodness. He takes our badness and he takes his goodness and it is given to us as if it were clothes. That when God looks at us, he sees us as being as righteous as Christ, if you have trusted Jesus. And so now in, in chapters 3 and 4, what Paul is going to start talking about, like Cliff and Stacy, now that you have new clothes, let's talk about your accessories. The, some of the things that used to go with your old wardrobe, your old wardrobe of self-righteousness and control and, and sinfulness, they don't go with your new wardrobe of being righteous in Christ, but in fact, these other things go. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're basically going to look at two wardrobe malfunctions and, and a topographical lesson. And the two wardrobe malfunctions, obviously, are idolatry and obscene talk. We'll obviously explain those. And when I say a topographical lesson, right, top, topography is different than geography in that topography is about place. There's, that Paul focuses in on one specific place where things are different than they are in the rest of the, the world. So let's look first at the, the first wardrobe malfunction, idolatry. I'm going to read, let me read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, Paul is going to give us here, in this particular passage, two lists of sins. One goes from specific to general, and one goes from general to specific. And I think he does that on purpose. So this particular list goes from specific to general. And if he, let's consider for a second, if he did it the other way, if he went from general to specific, it seems like it would make more sense given what we tend to think about sins in the church. So, for example, if we went backwards, instead of starting with sexual immorality, if we started with covetousness, right? So what is covetousness? You desire something. 
So you have a desire for something, right? The 10th commandment, you shall not covet, right? You, another man's wife or that kind of thing. So you look at something and you say, man, I want that thing. And then followed by that would be evil desires and passion. So on one hand, you look at something and say, wow, I would really like to have that thing that doesn't belong to me. I'm not content with where I am. And so now I'm looking at it and I'm starting to actually really desire it. I'm starting to think, how can I actually get that thing? which then leads to impure or impurity and impure thoughts, right? That you're thinking, wow, that you start to fantasize about the thing that you can't have or, or fantasize uh, about a, a woman that you want, as in the case of uh, King David and Bathsheba. You, you're actually, you're feeding that. And then what's the final part of this? The final part is sexual immorality. And that's where the line has been crossed. And so that would make sense. That would, that, if he said, here's, here's how sexual immorality happens. It starts with covetousness, and it goes to, to passions and, and desires, and it goes to impure thoughts. And then at some point, unfortunately, you cross the line, and it's sexual immorality. Now, why doesn't Paul do that? I think the reason he goes from specific sexual immorality to covetousness, to, to, which ultimately is idolatry, is for a reason. You see, if he started with covetousness and ended up with sexual immorality, a lot of people would be let off the hook. It would let a lot of people off the hook. Because if you think about it, a lot of people would hear that and say, well, that's not me. I don't struggle with that. I don't have a problem with that. I've never had an affair. I've never done this. And so all of a sudden, people are off the hook. You see, but on the other hand, you know, if you think about it in the context of the church, there are some sins that are acceptable and some sins that are not acceptable. Right? What do I mean by acceptable? I mean, I mean practically acceptable. Like I've never, we've never had to do church discipline on anyone for gluttony, or, <laughs> or lust, or or gossip. I mean, we sort of have done that for gossip. But the the point is, is there are some things that we just don't really bat an eye at, and there are other things that when we hear about, we sort of go, <gasps> and that almost inevitably is there are things that have to do with sex or sexual immorality or or something like that. And so it's actually pretty genius. Paul starts off with sexual immorality because whenever you say the word sex in church, suddenly you have people's attention. And the word, the, the very specific word there is porneia. So Paul starts out and he says, let's talk about porneia. You know, you have everyone go, whoa, okay, now we're getting into the good stuff that everyone else struggles with. And he takes it from sexual immorality and he builds up a case to idolatry. Now, why does he do that? Because by going in that direction, instead of letting everyone, many people off the hook, he puts every person on the hook. That when he ends with idolatry, there's no person who is not guilty of idolatry. There's no person who has not thought of some other thing as God than God, right? That's the first commandment, right? You should have no other gods but me. You should not make an idol for yourself. And what is idolatry? Just as a reminder, idolatry is when we put our hope and our comfort and our desires to, to save us and to, to comfort us in anything but the true God. So food can become an idol if that's where you turn in your despair. Shopping can become an idol if that's where you turn in your despair. Sex or pornography, any of those things can become idols. Your own self-righteousness can be an idol. Your own goodness can be an idol. In fact, remember John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. And Luther said that basically you can't break any of the other Ten Commandments, two through ten, without also breaking commandment number one. 
In other words, when you look at the rest of the commands, when you steal something, what, what that says is you really didn't believe that God was going to provide for you. So you break command number one, you had some other God. When, when you murder someone, you believe that God wasn't going to actually exercise vengeance that he promised on your behalf or give you justice. In, in other words, when you break all the rest of the commandments, you break commandment number one as well. So how do you know how you're doing with idolatry? Well, just look at commandments two through ten. And in other words, if you say, I'm not an idolater, but then you look and you're not doing that great on 2 through 10, you might want to rethink that. And Paul says those things, they don't go with your new outfit. <laughs> those accessories, they don't go. Those things need to be put off. And not only that, um, why does he do this? Basically, none of the ways that they used to accessorize before they put on Christ go with their new identity. In other words, all these things that we used to do before we were Christians, they don't go with the new identity that we have. In fact, he says, because of these, in verse 6, he says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, is he, is he warning Christians that they're going to have to bear God's wrath? I don't think so. What he's telling them is, here's how serious those things are. That, that you're, they don't go, not only do they not go with your new identity, but because of these, the wrath of God is coming. If you're a Christian, you will not bear the wrath of God because Jesus has borne it for you on the cross. But that doesn't mean that God is just can overlook or he is pleased with those things that we put on from our, our former self. Now, what, how, how do you get your head around this? How do you understand wrath here? Imagine this. Imagine um, you go to you and your wife or you and your husband, whoever, you go to a restaurant and you order your meal, and you order a cup of clam chowder, and the cup of clam chowder comes to your table, and in the middle of the cup of clam chowder is a thick, black, greasy, long hair. And you're bald, and your wife is blonde. What do you do? You look at it and say, well, honey, that hair is only point zero 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 one percent of the volume of that soup. It couldn't hurt much. I'm just going to go ahead. Or worse, you should go ahead. <laughs> do we do that? No, no one does. You're immediately repulsed by that. It's revolting. It's like, oh, you know, even though the soup might be the tastiest soup, even though it might be the best soup, even though that's only one hair, it is not acceptable to you. And the same thing goes with God and sin. He doesn't look down and go, oh, that's just one little sin Tommy did. He never says that, by the way. <laughs> There's a lot more than just one. Um, the point is, is that God in his holiness and his justice and his goodness and his truth, he just can't overlook sin. And because of that, his wrath is coming. And interestingly enough, a lot of people debate, is he talking about the sins that he just spoke of or the sins that are coming? And probably because Paul's a, a genius writer inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's talking about both. And so that leads to wardrobe malfunction number two. Right? He goes from sexual immorality to idolatry. He said, those things don't go with your new wardrobe. If you wear them, it's a, it's a malfunction. And the second malfunction he talks about is obscene talk. Notice verse uh, 6, 7, and... Or, well, let's go 6 through 10. It says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed 
after the image of its creator. Now notice in this, the list here, Paul actually does go from general to specific. And he's actually building up to something that is very important. In, in, in other words, in the last list, we tend to make sexual immorality like the, the queen of all sins or the king of all sins, the worst possible thing. Paul starts with that as like, yeah, okay, it, it's a sin and it's bad, but he builds up to what's really bad. Here, Paul starts to, with anger and he builds up to very, one specific thing that is actually the worst possible thing, at least in the context of the church. So notice he starts with anger. What is anger? He says anger is basically when you, you get something that you thought you de- didn't, that you get something that you didn't think you deserved, or you didn't get something that you did think you deserved. Okay? So for example, I think I deserve to have the left lane of traffic open anytime I want to drive in it. And I deserve that other people should drive the speed limit in that lane if they're going to do it. Now, the fact is, I really don't deserve that, but I think of that, I must think that, because if I work my way back, I get very angry at that. But anything where we think we deserve something, maybe, maybe you got cancer or some disease. I hear, I've heard people oftentimes say, I'm angry at God now. Well, why are you angry at God? Well, it's because you didn't think you deserved to get that. You didn't think you deserved to be the one person who had to deal with this, when in fact you're not. But at the end of the day, that's what anger is. And especially in the context with with other people, um, we think we deserve something from them that we didn't get. We had expectations that weren't met. And so the next thing, he goes from anger to wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is when you decide, you know, I need to do something about this. Like, I'm, I'm angry, and now I need to do something about this. And then the next one in line is malice. And what's malice? Malice is when you start to come up with a plan. You start to, to add some intentionality to your anger. Like, I need to harm this person. And how do you do it? Well, verses uh, in 4 and 5, the fourth and fifth thing, slander. How do you carry out the plan? Right? So you're angry. You're going to do something about it. You start to think about doing something about it, and, and you plan for it. How do you carry it out? Well, slander happens. Now, why slander? Slander because most of us are too cowardly to actually murder somebody. And so it's a lot easier to just murder their reputation. It's a lot easier to, to murder your boss's reputation than to murder him and, you know, put him out in the ocean someplace in plastic bags, right? If you watch it Dexter ever, <laughs> right? It's just, it's a lot easier to do that. And so people choose to do that all the time. And so what's the, the next logical thing? is how do you do it, how, what, is, what does it lead to, is how do you commit verbal murder? It's basically obscene talk in verse 5. And obscene talk in verse 5 where he talks about, um, I'm sorry, not verse 5, verse 8. Um, obscene talk, the word there is actually blasphemy. And if I ask you, who can be blasphemed? We would say, well, God can, right? Jesus was often accused of blasphemy. He was accused of blasphemy for claiming to be God. He was accused of blasphemy for things he said about the temple. He was accused of blasphemy for things he said about Abraham. And in other words, he was accused of blasphemy whenever he said something that didn't jibe with um, with tradition or uh, what they thought when he when they thought he was violating uh, that which is sacred. There's truth to that. That's what blasphemy is. But blasphemy basically is to violate that which is sacred predominantly with your words. And so when you are talking about other people, when you are slandering other people, you are, in some sense, you are blaspheming them. Because remember, if we go all the way back to the first sermon, all human beings are made in the image of God. 
whether they're black or white or Asian, and when we, we criticize them, and we're all guilty of it, right? I can't be the only one who ever watched television and said, that guy's an idiot. Or thought of someone in church and said, man, that person's an idiot. Or I can't believe that person does this and that. And Billy like, Samuel, let me tell you about this person, right? And Samuel, of course, would say, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> of course not. Right? But it's our go-to. We go straight from anger and we make a really quick beeline all the way down to obscene talk. Now, what's so important about that and to, so important to point out is what Paul is not talking about here. What Paul is not talking about here is cussing. Right? We tend to make this verse about cussing. That, you know, that, what Paul, that the really the major predominant sin that Paul is talking about, the, the worst possible thing that could ever happen is for you to become a Christian and then for a four-letter word to come out of your mouth. God forbid. That's not what he's talking about. Because if he was talking about that, he would let most people off the hook. He'd let them off the hook. Why? Because I know a lot of people who would call themselves Christians, who would rather die than use a four-letter word. But they're more than comfortable with slandering and running other people down. Which do you think destroys community? Paul's trying to build community here. He's trying to bring people together. Do you think it's the person who, who occasionally mutters of a four-letter word? Not that I'm encouraging that, and not that I think Paul would encourage that. But do you think it's that person, or do you think it's the person that is slandering, the person that is committing blasphemy by, by running other people down? Of course, it's the former. Now, how do, how do we not do that? How do we, how do we, what's the, the, where do we get the power to not be blasphemers? Where do we get the power to not be those who run down other people, those who divide the church ultimately with the sin of our mouths? And I think the answer is in what I'm going to call the anti-M principle. What do I mean by the anti-M principle? Um, I'm assuming since it's been out for about 80 years, most of you have seen The Wizard of Oz. If you remember in The Wizard of Oz, there's a great scene, at least, especially for, with regard to this passage, where it's when the, the movie is still in black and white, and Elmira Gulch shows up at Dorothy's house, and she has a warrant from the sheriff to take Toto away, because she claims that Toto has bitten her. Now, as a side note, I call BS on that. Why? Because I own a Cairn Terrier, just like Toto, and they would never bite anybody. But that's a side note. <laughs> feel like I have to defend the breed here. Anyhow, she comes and she claims that Toto has bitten her, and she has a warrant from the sheriff. And Dorothy, Dorothy's response and Auntie M's response could not be further apart. You remember what Dorothy says? She just screams out, You wicked witch! Foreshadowing alert, right? And she streams off. Old self, Auntie M, she considers it for a second. And she, she says, Elmira Gulch, I've waited 23 years to tell you exactly what I think of you. But I'm too much of a Christian woman to do it. <laughs> now, if you think about it, that's pretty brilliant on Auntie M's part. Because on one hand, she said, I have a lot of things I think about you. But the, saying those things don't go with my new wardrobe. Saying those things are inconsistent with the new identity I have in Christ. 
She's, she, in other words, how is she dealing with her, her, her temptation to, to actually say the evil, mean things on her mind? She is reminding herself of her identity in Christ. She preaches the gospel to herself. I have all these things that I have thought about saying, that I think about you, but they don't go with my new identity. That's the anti-M principle. That, that is where we find the power. When we are in the same situation, do we remind ourselves that we are in Christ now? Do we remind ourselves that he, we are wearing his robes because he is wearing our robes? We remind ourselves of the gospel. And that leads to the next thing, the next part of this, where basically Paul talks about lying. Right? Remember, he's trying to bring the community together. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and I put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the Creator. So, why is this so important? This, this, that verse always reminds me of Roger's standing orders. When I was in the Army, I was in a Ranger battalion, and Rangers go all the way back to before the Revolutionary War. They're part of the French and Indian War. They were started by a, a guy named Robert Rogers, and he came up with 19 standing orders that we all had to memorize. And to this day, they still have to memorize them. And the first standing order is don't forget nothing, right? Seems pretty obvious. Uh, <laughs> the second standing order is basically to be stealthy. Sneak up on your enemy like you were sneaking up on a deer. The third one has to do with keeping your musket clean all the time. And the fourth one, he says, never lie to another ranger. Then you tell other people all you want about the Rangers. <laughs> like you can go to a bar, I guess, and tell stories all you want. But when it comes down to what is important with another Ranger, you have to tell the truth, he says, because there's an army depending on us. In other words, nothing breaks unit cohesion like not being able to trust the other people in your unit. And nothing breaks trust like lying. And Paul says, don't lie. Now, lest you let yourself off the hook. He doesn't say, just don't lie. Like, don't read this passage and hear him say, just don't lie. And you say, well, I don't lie. He says, don't lie to one another. In, in other words, if you never talk to anybody, then I guess you never lie, and so you're not guilty of that. But Paul's assumption is that we are constantly engaged in relationship with other people, and because of that, we don't lie. Now, the question is, why do we lie in the first place? Getting back to the gospel... We lie, you know, if you think about it, why does someone who's not a Christian lie? Well, they don't lie because they think that, that telling the truth is going to bring consequences that are worse than, the, than they have right now. And so they lie. Well, what the gospel says is that God has our back, that Jesus has taken everything, and so we can actually tell the truth. We can tell the truth to each other. So Paul goes from there. And he says, when, when he says one another, he assumes we're going to be in community. And who is part of this community? And that's where he begins what I'm going to call the topographical lesson. Look at verse 11. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So who are these various groups? We talked about them a little bit last week, but they changed this week. Right? We have Greeks and Jews, he says here. Then, remember, Greeks were cosmopolitan. Greeks were snooty. Greeks expected that if you didn't speak Greek, you probably weren't as good as them. And at the end of the day, maybe you weren't. Right? Everyone in the ancient Near East spoke Greek. So Greeks had such influence, they just assumed that they were the dominant society, the dominant culture. They were. 
Jews, on the other hand, were very exclusive. Right? Jews had the temple, they had uh, Yahweh, one God, they had circumcision, they had all of these things. So Jews thought very highly of themselves as well. As you go down the list, you see where he says Jew, Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. It's basically a repeat of that. And then he says barbarian, Scythian, and that's where things get interesting. So when we think of barbarian, I think we tend to think, at least I would initially think, you know, sort of, ah, you know, barbarians, they go across Europe raping and pillaging in the Middle Ages and that kind of thing, and Hagar the Horrible, if you remember that comic with the Vikings with the, the horns on their head. And that's not really true. Barbarians were simply, at least in this context, barbarians were simply people who didn't speak Greek. The, the reason they called them barbarians is because they were mocking their language, which apparently sounded like bar, 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 bar. Right? And so they would go to try and talk to a Greek person, and they would just go, bar, 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 bar. They mocked them, right? They were, in other words, they were sort of like rubes or hayseeds, whatever, whatever diminutive you want to use about them. They just weren't a part of civilized society. Now, where it gets interesting is when you start to talk about Scythians. Scythians are what we tend to think of when we think of barbarians. Scythians were the original horse lords. Scythians were the ones who rode horses across the Asian steppes, raping and pillaging as they went along. Scythians are the ones who both men and women, their women were incredibly fierce warriors. In fact, Scythian women are the basis for all the legends we have about the Amazons. So if you watch Wonder Woman and you say, wow, Wonder Woman was the Amazon. Well, where do the Amazons come from? Scythians. And Scythians were so fierce. I mean, the women were so fierce. They would go out and they would go into battle and all of their kills, they would come back and they would have them tattooed all over their body. So can you imagine a context where you have people who are uncivilized and they come and they have tattoos all over their body and them actually being welcomed to church? Paul says, yes. This passage is amazing. If you look back at the context... Because what every group here has in common is that they're all outside to each other. The Greeks are outsiders to the Jews. The Jews are outsiders to the Greeks. The circumcised are outsiders to the uncircumcised and vice versa. The the barbarians are outsiders to the Jews and the Greeks and the Scythians. And everyone's an outsider to the Scythians. And the Scythians are an outsider to everybody. And how does Paul sort of culminate this lesson on wardrobe? He says, here, in this place... Topography here. He says outside, outside of this place, and he's talking about the church. Outside of the church, people can be outsiders to each other. Outside of this, the, the church, you can be black if you want. Outside the church, you can be white if you want. Outside the church, you can be Asian if you want. Outside the church, you can be anything you want. Paul says here in this place, here in this place, there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, in this place, everyone is an insider. Even the Scythians. I mean, I can, you, you can only imagine Paul reading this being read in a church in Colossae and people just sort of going, yeah, blah, blah, we've heard this before. Jew, Greek, uncircumcised, circumcised, barbarian. They might have raised an eyebrow. Scythians. And I imagine if Paul was reading it himself, he might have stopped and said, yes, even Scythians. 
that the worst possible sinner that you can think in your mind, the most reprehensible person, the person who is, who is tattooed and the person who is uncouth, that person, if they have put their faith in Christ, has a completely new wardrobe. And here in this place, that is all that matters. That they are in Christ. Christ is all and in all. You see, that's why when we think about basically the the only thing that has the power to do this, the only thing that has the power to bring together Jew and Greek and Scythian and barbarian and black and white and Asian, the only thing that has power to do that is the gospel. What we've talked about all morning. You know, I've been doing this this passage, this, this series on race and ethnicity and a few people have mentioned, you know, why haven't you talked more about critical race theory or why haven't you talked more about anti-racism? And here, I'll tell you why I haven't. Is because critical race theory and anti-racism, they actually have, I think, valid criticisms that we need to consider. But there is no gospel in them. If you only have criticisms of what exists, you only can divide more and more. You need something with gospel in it, something that is able to actually bring forgiveness, something that's actually able to bring reconciliation, something that's able to actually bring change. And what Paul says is that in Christ, that has happened. That here in this place, we can hear critical race theory and say, wow, that probably is a problem. We need to deal with it. And we have the tools to deal with it. And here in this place, we ought to be the ones who are actually transforming the world. I'm I'm amazed at how often Christians are scared and Christians are afraid and Christians are worried that this or that's going to take over the culture. Well, instead of being worried, go out and start doing it. Instead of being worried, we just need to be engaged in it. That basically all of these things can identify problems, but they can't solve them. The gospel ultimately can. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray. I thank you for this passage. I thank you for including this in the Bible because if even Scythians... Are included. If even Scythians can be in Christ, that means that even I can be in Christ. That means even the worst of sinners can be in Christ. I pray that the worst of sinners here today would hear that. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.